Hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of The Fourth Leg, a tabletop gaming show all about giving new GMs a leg to stand on. My name is Hunter, I'm your host and editor, and I am joined today by my abnormal co-hosts, Joe and Kelsey. Say hi, Joe and Kelsey. Hi, Joe and Kelsey. How's it going? And we are honored to be joined by none other than Giant Blue Canary himself. Uh, Hi, uh, my name is Henry. I'm Giant Blue Canary most everywhere. And I have been playing role-playing games for over 20 years and have been involved in 5th edition organized play since day one. So Beautiful. Glad to hear that. When I say that out loud, I get to feel old. <laughs> that means you were in that meat grinder of the first like section of uh, what are the uh, Adventures League had modules back then, so you didn't have to do it in the book. Ooh. Oh well, they they did like a paper version of like the first like section of the book, if I remember. Uh, right. When Horde of the Dragon Queen came out. Yeah, the modules were kind of tied in. Uh, the problems with the early modules. I actually have a story about one, but most of that's due to bucking the trends <laughs> of, uh, you know, good dice mechanics and uh, luck. So, Well, that's actually going to be part of our discussion today, because besides doing really poor segues into people introducing themselves like I just did, uh, <laughs> we <laughs> are going to be talking about uh, adjusting modules to your home games today. But before that, we need to get into our fun fact. So, our fun fact for today is going to be, what is your favorite tabletop module or one-shot, and why? So, uh, we can round-robin this. If anybody has one, they can feel free to jump in, or I can start us off. Up to y'all. So, uh, my current favorite module or one-shot is probably the New Blood Starter Pack for VTM 5th Edition. Ooh. Uh, so the really cool thing about this starter set, first of all, it's only available digitally, so you're not going to like drop a ton of money on a fancy box or anything. But what they do is they break it down, so it's like, hey, here's like your starter rules pack, very similar to the way like the D&D box sets do. But they also have character sheets for the characters and normally your vtm sheet is going to be like front and back like here are all your stats and dots and then here's like some specific stuff stuff on the back but the new blood kit starts you off as all freshly turned kindred and so you're all waking up trying to figure out like what the hell just happened to you you have very like slapshot memories like you're trying to like figure out how you ended up where you are and for the first segment of the game, you only function off of that first page, and it's teaching you, like, hey, this is how you make your your general roll. Like, hey, you're going to roll this stat plus this stat, and that's how we get these numbers. And then once you kind of realize what's going on and you're, you realize you're vampires, you actually get to flip to the next sheet, and so you have more information. So they parse that out for the players in a really, like, digestible format instead of, like, all right, cool, here's a 5th edition character sheet. Figure it out. Have fun deciding what AC is. So they they do a really good job introducing the rules to the players and kind of like walking you through it in the course of the module. 
as opposed to just throwing you in the deep end. But it's also a really good like jumping off point because they give you a lot of flexibility as far as like, hey, pick any of these characters to show up here. You know, these characters are likely to have interest in XYZ, but like you have so much flexibility and kind of nebulous information. So that's useful if you want to use it as a springboard or just something to kind of get your group interested in the system. Nice. Uh, I actually have thought of uh, a favorite, and it's a favorite because it's a lot of fun and kind of dumb, but also mm-hmm. because it highlights uh, one of the fundamental problems with uh, league play in general. Uh, so there are a series okay. of Adventures League modules that are tier one, you know, level one to four, uh, new players and whatnot. And uh, the beginning of every module is something happens and you get turned into cats. And then you go adventuring as cats. (laughs) And then at the end of the module, you turn back into whatever else because you successfully went on a little cat adventure. Uh, And of course... They're fun because you have to pretend to be a cat, more or less. They're actually well-written so that, like, a lot of the tasks and things that are set up in the module are, like, playing with a cat busy toy to solve a puzzle. And they're well-written in that respect. Uh, As an experienced player, sure, we're all cats for a while. Like, I... You know, I don't need to be able to do my special abilities or use my magic items. Uh, we get to be cats. Cool. <laughs> Sometimes being a GM is like hurting cats. And that's, <laughs> that too. That's a very apt analogy. So it's like playing stray, but multiplayer. Uh, sort of, yeah. Um, yeah. And like I said, it's, it's fun because it's just kind of a nonsense thing, but it was really well done, or the series is well done. But you know, it encapsulates kind of the issue with organized play and that if you try to keep the very experienced players interested, you can lose track of keeping the game accessible uh, for new players when, you know, organized play, at least for Adventures League, uh, is a lot about, you know, creating opportunities for new people to join in. So. Sure. Um, I want to segue for a second and just talk about um, there was actually a D&D podcast that I listened to, The Unexpectables, that did something similar, but instead of the players turning into cats, they all turned into dogs. Well, and yeah, and the uh, <laughs> uh, the Dungeons and Doggies and Cats and Catacombs 5e settings are both playing dogs and cats in 5th edition adventurers. Uh, the pony finder system <laughs> is for my little pony, but in D and would play that in a heartbeat. That's great. Like I'm not a brony or anything, but my little pony is truly <laughs> a fantastic show. But you should see the posters and as no, you shouldn't. Everyone, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Well, if it's all right, uh, I'll go ahead. I'll I'll go t- into my favorite go module or one shot. 
So this is an interesting one because this isn't actually one that I've had the privilege of playing through. It's just one that I've read through or heard talked about on a number of occasions. And it's like the original advanced D&D Hand of Vecna. And it's for a very particular reason. Not because it's well-balanced or well-written, because it's it's not. Um, But the thing that really draws me to the original Hand of Vecna is how uniquely it ends, which is that your characters die. All of them. It's supposed to happen. It's written into the script. And it's something that I find incredibly unique and very subversive of the genre because you know in a lot of fantasy stories you end with defeating the dragon or whatever and that's the big climactic ending is you're triumphant at the end so having a story where you know the characters are deigned to die from the start is so interesting Um, to me okay that actually is a feature of first and second edition early D D league play uh, oh, so the seasons of league play in original Dungeons and Dragons and first and second edition AD&D, uh, you would, when they were closing out a series of modules or closing out a storyline or something, you would have like a final module where no one was supposed to live. Rather, Tomb of Horrors, like the original module, you're not supposed to finish. You're supposed to end up dead. Well, and wasn't Tomb of Horrors kind of a, like, organized event speedrun kind of thing that you were trying, you were supposed to see, like, how far you could get in, like, a yeah, convention or something? Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. It was a module, and that that's the kind of module that ended each season on the convention circuit for the different storylines. So at the end of the storyline, they had... Like, Tomb of Horrors is the most famous one. And you'd play at the convention, and you'd just see how far you got. And, you know, the badge of honor was how far you got, or uh, the fact that you got to play and your character died in the most interesting way, or whatever. You know, you'd collect all your magic items, and it was a good opportunity to be like, well, I've got this, you know, uh, robe of many things, or whatever. I'm going to just rip everything out of the pockets and see if I can make use of any of it before I end up dead. Yeah, I know a lot of, uh, well, AD&D and back was all very adversarial because it was designed with war games in mind, which are uh, a necessarily adversarial medium. So it's really interesting to see the evolution of the game through all of the additions and how it's gone to this more narrative, collaborative experience versus an adversarial, challenge-based experience. Yeah, almost video gamey. The first, the first editions were because it was like you versus the system, almost. Yeah, yeah. Although we didn't really have a lot of video games at that point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, Kelsey, um, do you have a favorite module or one shot? What do you think? Ah. Uh... I really had to think about this one because I have not read a bunch of them or finished any. So I'm just going to go with the experience of the one that I had the most fun playing as a player. Go for it. Uh, And that is, this is going to sound really gauche or cliche, but I had a lot of fun with Curse of Strahd. Mm. (gasps) How dare (laughs) you? 
Yeah, uh, hey, you're the you're the only person that mentioned it. Well, specifically it. fifth edition, because uh, I know that there were previous editions. But um, the most fun that I had was when uh, Reno, who we had on the podcast before, mm-hmm. uh, DM'd for uh, Curse of Strahd for like a session, but because of scheduling conflicts, we couldn't continue with future sessions. But the first session that we had with Curse of Strahd, I remember it was I derailed for a good half an hour like i was the cause of the derailment because i was convincing this little old woman in this village that i was her long lost daughter and we were spending like 30 minutes trying to convince this woman yes i am your long lost daughter yes that's definitely my uh toy puppet that you have in your hands there yes um i'm not dead (laughs) and just spending 30 minutes in that role play which was it was a lot of fun and then like picking up a false name and all this and then when we met the fortune teller later the fortune teller like referred to my character with the name that i had given her and i was like nope that's not me and then she's like hmm are you gertruda and gertruda was the long lost daughter and i'm like ah dang you got me (laughs) (laughs) so it was just fun role playing in that one um, from a game mechanic standpoint, uh, Tomb of Annihilation was a fun one, but only because I had designed a character specifically to die, but he lived the longest out of all of the player characters. That's <laughs> like, lovely. I had designed this guy to, I know, I had designed him to be like, he was a dad, he, he was a dragonborn barbarian, he was, his name was Mathabaharata, but you can call him Dicky. I specifically designed him to die. And I expected him to die in the first session. He lived the longest out of all of the characters in that campaign. I was shocked. Well, it's the unexpected that make it fun, right? Exactly. I didn't, it was interesting. Yeah, didn't mean to interrupt you. Yeah, uh, Curse of Strata's in 5th edition is a pretty fun reprint or reimagining. My it's one of my favorite settings uh, as well, because I'm a big fan of gothic horror. They did, as with a lot of the fifth edition story tweaks, they made some changes without really thinking about what kind of repercussions it makes. Uh, Yeah. So like in fifth edition, uh, it's not quite as clear that Strahd is really like a victim of his own problems. And it, my roommate is a tremendous nerd about uh, especially the Ravenloft lore. So he's always like, they've changed this one thing and it you know, has all these massive repercussions through all of the possible histories. I'm like, I would just prefer that, you know, not make Strahd sort of an okay guy because he's not supposed God, to be yeah, sort of yeah. an okay guy <laughs> Ka- he's, kind he's of, not somebody you sympathize with yeah yeah kind of like how they changed Thanos in the Marvel Universe because in the original comics he was definitely like I'm trying to impress death because I love her so much why won't she notice me and that definitely did not happen in the movies. Those are some pants we'll put on a little bit later if we have time. Because <laughs> that's a that's a barrel barrel of who. 
Mm. But with that, that is a separate barrel of monkeys. Oh yes. With that in mind, mm, though, literally and figuratively. Let's go ahead. Let's get into our topic today, which, as we mentioned before, and as we've kind of been kicking around in this fun fact, is modules. Not just for D and D, but we'll probably talk about that a lot because it has a massive amount of them. Uh, but just modules in general for any system that you'd like to play, and how to tweak them a little bit to fit into your home campaign. So as is our want, we are going to invite our guest to kick us off. Uh, Mr. Henry, why don't you let us know what you think about tweaking modules to fit into a home campaign? Uh, I actually, when I do home campaigns, I prefer grabbing modules over trying to steal things out of a setting book. Uh, Mm. So, you know, like a setting book is just mostly flavor the D&D 5th edition books are not quite as good at doing settings because they have a lot more of details of the adventure in them than some mm-hmm. of the other older edition materials would have where it was just tons of characters and a lot of places and talking about the mm-hmm. politics and all that stuff. You know, so you'd, you'd have to kind of figure out where things fit within that structure to build your adventures. You know, a module has got a list of people and places that you need to run into to get to a story goal that the module has set for. Yeah, the story beats that you got it. Yeah, they're very episodic, you know, like, uh, you know, your campaign is a movie or a season-long story arc episodes are you know half hour tv shows 15 minute cartoon segments you know they're uh quick uh typically because they're written to run in a time uh a lot of them are written to run in a certain amount of time uh, they're a little more goal oriented and may not have room for the kind of nuanced overthinking uh that you might want to do sometimes um but the reason I like, uh, if I'm going to import them into a home game, having that is that they provide a pretty straight line through to the end. And if people or your players wander off, there's a lot of space on the edges to fill in. Mm-hmm. But the other thing is that I approach running even a module, like modules tend to be written in order if they're well planned by the author. <laughs> Uh, but each of the things inside is is just a building block. And, you know, if the players pick up all the blocks by the end of the time, they can usually put the picture or the story together at the end, you know. Especially for poorly written modules where maybe the author forgot to write down stuff that they knew about the module. Some of the lower quality modules the authors don't necessarily know that because modules get tested or run through with more skilled players sometimes or a regular group of players the authors never think about like what other questions people might ask about stuff Mm -hmm. um because you know my players know how to navigate this story so like, I don't have to remember to tell you that if they don't find this clue, they can't answer the puzzle. 
because my yeah. my group always finds the clue. <laughs> well, right. here's where I'm going to say something that's probably going to make a lot of people a little upset. Um, I think TTRPGs in general function best in a mechanical sense when the players are on rails, right? Like the rules, the modules in this case, uh, and a lot of the combat balancing are all designed for players to do what's intended for them within the system, right? But that's not really fun as a player, and that's where we get the derivative playstyle of going more narrative and less railroad. So I would argue mm-hmm. that it's true that the rules and any whatever rule system you have it creates a set of rails that the players are supposed to be on. But as a storyteller or GM, uh, your main job and the main skill that you're exhibiting is the ability to hide those rails. You know, the players Mm -hmm. can wander around and not be always aware of the mechanics all the time. Before I started DMing a lot, I was really nervous about it, but then I realized that, like, the players also want to ignore that there are rails underneath for the rules. Mm-hmm. You know, as long as you're not forcing them too hard into it, uh, they're pretty forgiving about when you make mistakes about where to get, you know, where things are fitting together. My main anxiety initially about starting to DM was not knowing enough of the rules to, you know, do a good job. Mm -hmm. The main thing is, uh, that, you know, you're responsible for as the storyteller or GM for juggling all the pieces. And if the pieces are moving smoothly enough around the players, they don't have time to, or don't really care that there's, the rules rails under there. And the other thing is that, um, you know, there are actual modules that like have hard railroading in them. And the reason that hard railroading is miserable for everyone is because the pieces fit so tightly together or the person who wrote it decided that the pieces must go in this order so definitively that they aren't they don't really want you to play a game they want to tell you a story yeah yeah they, they, yeah. Want, they want you to listen yeah to they've decided they have a story right. to tell mm-hmm. you and you know you can pretend you're playing a game but this is how the story goes whereas you know a well-written module you know knows that it's a game which is part of why it's easy to view the parts of it as pieces because a good writer writing a good module knows it's a game and is giving you pieces to play that game or pieces to put that puzzle together or pieces, you know, to work with instead of, you know, I have a picture and I'm going to draw it for you, or I have the story that I'm going to tell to you. I would, I mean, I can, I can take some heat, but uh, I think that's why like the, TMS stuff that that kicked off fifth edition was not as well loved as say stuff like Strahd or other modules 
is because it's literally like the first three chapters are like, all right, bam, this happens, and then now you're on a chapter two, and then, okay, cool, and this and that, all right, chapter three, and you're like, oh, man, like, where do we get, like, some downtime to just do stupid D&D stuff? Like, yeah. I, I mean, every now and then, like, sometimes your party just wants to convince somebody that they're someone's long-lost kid or go chase a chicken. Like, it, it's... Mm-hmm. It's real life. Like, sometimes you need to take a, a decompression moment from these big story notes, and it doesn't always give you that. Yeah. Um, so, as you guys are talking about this, I've been thinking about... Because um, I keep just keep thinking about... Brennan Lee Mulligan had said in a roundtable discussion uh, that player characters are like water, and it is your job as the DM to find a way for the water to get downhill in the most creative way possible. So just thinking about that kind of analogy, then it would seem to me that like having railroads, quote unquote, would be like, oh, the the water, aka the story, needs to get downstream. So let's just build the straightest slide possible. And that's not really fun. I would view a railroad more of the uh, a t- tightly chartered trip versus, you know, like going out and exploring on your own. Like everybody went to Rome, but the people who went on the tour bus had a very programmed oh, experience so... versus yeah. when you were wandering around and, you know. Yeah, a carnival cruise versus pack backpacking. Yeah, something like that. Uh, yeah. Because, like... Straight, fast water slides can be fun. Uh, if you go fast yeah. enough, sure. <laughs> there are a thousand analogies for how to describe like working with players and the ways to treat players to try and create a good experience. And, you know, like people use sometimes describe it as adversarial, which isn't actually good, but there are players that view dms or gms as their adversary and if you aren't aware of that then you know they can run over you or you know you maybe won't notice that they're also like running over other players you know my main experience with adventures league is that i'm you know i run more convention open play setting where any player can show up and uh, my favorite are actually brand new players because I like seeing people discover D and D and like learn how to play D and D uh, and enjoy themselves. But you know, we also get like all of the worst players that you can think of. Um, uh, and yeah, you know, there's a there's a subset of GM skills about managing those players. When they mm-hmm. sit down at a table full of other people. <laughs> yep. But, yep. you know, the other thing is that, like, our current organized play community, we struggled but eventually convinced the um, host to take an interest in the actual community development. And we have all of our other DMs, like buy-in to meaningful community standards and conduct so that when we have a problem player, we know that all of the DMs in our group are going to be working on 
teaching them not to behave that way. Uh, we know that when we get new players, none of our DMs are going to like tell them that secretly they need to remember that the DM is their opponent because all those play styles are things that people learn. And if you start playing D and D with people with a group that thinks that, you know, your enemy is the DM and you do need to be trying to be the superhero among superheroes or quote unquote, win the game yeah. yeah, or win the table, uh, mm-hmm. you know, it doesn't mean that you're a bad player. It just means that you learned to play, you know, from bad examples. So fortunately, like I said, I'm doing organized play right now with a group that is taking that head on. And uh, we have made noticeable improvements uh, in the conduct of our players and they've Mm -hmm. you know come back and complimented us on the environment that we create and how much nicer it is to play in our organized play space than in other spaces that they've been to it's really awesome to hear i know organized play in any system can kind of be a crapshoot sometimes you never know what you're stepping into yeah and I think that's step one to any game building, right, is getting to know your players and kind of working on the relationship at the table. Because if you have a bad relationship at the table, it's going to transfer into game inevitably, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but with that, Joe, you have a lot to say on this topic. So we're going to go ahead and pivot into your notes so that we can get this moving. <laughs> All right, guys, and absolutely, as always, feel free to jump in whenever I say something that sparks something Absolutely. Okay. Uh, so first, you know, why would we tweak a module, right? Uh, Watsy, White Wolf, pick your, pick your company du jour. They pay these people a decent chunk of money, and they're professional game designers, right? Surely they know what they're doing. Why would we change it? So first of all... When, when you're going to look at making a change to a module, I strongly suggest you read the module all the way through and take some yeah. notes. I feel called out right now. <laughs> hey, I'm, I'm, I didn't say read the, read the module all the way through Kelsey. Okay. But if you want to self-apply, that's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so the big thing here is that you are free to make changes. It's totally your game. And you can do these things on the fly. But if you're doing so from a position of having read the whole module, you know what effects these changes that you're writing into your game are going to have on the overall story. So say, for example, we talked about Curse of Strahd earlier. You like Curse of Strahd, you think it's a cool premise, but you want character X to be involved instead of, say, Tatiana. Okay, that's valid, but you need to know what that's going to mean for the rest of the story. If it's If it's not necessarily like... Tatiana on the face of it like what does that mean for the rest of the the tale because there are like we talked about there are some stations in the majority of these adventures that you're going to have to pass through as your track winds and so we need to make sure that we are not just taking a hard left and you're like oh well I didn't really think how that was gonna 
going to go. And now we're out here in left field, and I've kind of written us out of the module. Which is fine, depending on how you're going to use the module, but if you want to run the module as a complete experience, it's going to be a little tough on you. So, ask yourself, what touches of your own do you want to add to the module? And how do they serve the story or challenge the players? Uh, there's some stuff that you may look at that may not work. Uh, I know Tomb of Annihilation gets a lot of flack for the way the Death Curse is written. Mm -hmm. And so there are plenty of supplements, house rules, etc. to make that module more enjoyable or more uh, palatable to your common player so that it's not frustrating. Uh, I ran out of the abyss for one of my tables recently and I don't love the madness rules as presented in the DMG. I think they're a little um, first of all a little insensitive to kind of what they represent and then I don't think mm. that I think that they're turned up to 11 because it's fantasy tabletop RPG. So mm. I tweaked that system a little bit because since the the module deals a lot with demons mm -hmm then you're going to have some of that stress and anxiety and you're you're seeing these like otherworldly monstrosities rip through the underdark. Gotcha. Um Rhyme of the Frostmaiden is heavily inspired by John Carpenter's The Thing, but there is very little in it to like present itself as that kind of survival horror experience that they're kind of billing it as. And so there's some stuff where you may have to tweak those things to to make it do a little bit more of what you want read the module all the way through and take notes is very, very important. If you're running a two or four hour, like convention style setting module or one shot story, because uh, I have read, read and run hundreds of the tie in modules. And uh, if you cannot read the module all the way through before you run it, the module is telling you a secret about how bad it is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and either you need to make a decision that you are going to fix everything wrong with it so that you can use it, or <laughs> you get three pages mm -hmm. in and say, you know what? If I can't get three pages in without wondering what's going on, my players can't, like... Because the other thing to remember about a module is that as the GM, you're behind the curtain reading everything that there is to know about it. There are no secrets to you. So if you have a ton of questions about what's going on and why people are doing stuff and who even cares, by the time you get to the second or third page and it doesn't look like any of those things are being answered, you know, you have a lot of heavy lifting to do because you need to an be able to answer all that to your players. Because your players are invariably going to ask, why are we here? What are we doing this for? Who hired us? And yep. there are modules that will not tell you who hired you and why you're supposed to be doing stuff. And it's like, where is the adventure now? <laughs> like, I have an ending, but there's no beginning or middle here. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Mm -hmm. 
One of the, I think one of the big questions uh, you have to ask yourself, whether you're using a Adventures League module or uh, one of the published adventures from any given company is, where and when do you plan on stepping off the beaten path? And is that going to serve your story? Like, to what end are you diverting if you've set out to run this, you know, two to four hour adventure or seven to 15 session adventure? Like, where you ignore or change the book, like, what is what purpose is it going to serve? What comes to my mind when you bring that up, Joe, is, uh, so mm-hmm. this is going to date this episode a little bit but when adventure uh, avengers endgame came out certain moviegoers went and saw it opening night and took a notebook to note the best times to go to the bathroom during the what three hour and 15 minute runtime of the movie wow mm-hmm. And no, it was super useful because I really needed to go to the bathroom during my first viewing, so I'm not upset about it. But, um, it, but that's still like, wow. That uh, that's what it makes me think of because it's like, eventually, mm-hmm. you're going to need to break that constant flow of of information mm-hmm. and story, and so having mm-hmm. moments sure. for that kind of decompression is. Uh, really really good it can enrich the more dramatic parts of the story so yeah just take note bookmark those moments where the players can kind of free roam a little bit uh without you know breaking the pace or uh, harming the dramatic tension of the story and let it roll absolutely yeah like one of those things is a lot of um the modules for you know organized play modules because they're set to run in a certain amount of time they also have to manage mechanically for D&D they manage how many rests you get so they know how much power you have in different mm-hmm. parts of the module mm-hmm. uh so a lot of them tend to have timers that keep running to make you jump from place to place to make sure that you don't say oh well uh, if nobody's going to die, we can take a long rest after every person we talk to interaction. And then we'll always be, you know, um, you know, but if you're going to grab that story and just run it as a one shot for your group or insert it someplace so that you've got a little bit of filler or use the, you know, borrow the storyline or the, um mystery plot or what have you you know you can definitely switch that timing up to let your players uh have stuff or even you know ignore the specific time frame that you want to uh so that you get you know you can leave your players time to be like well we know that these things are kind of happening, but we don't know when they're going to happen. So, you know, if your players choose to go visit with a shopkeeper or, you know, get themselves a new grandmother or something, uh, (laughs) they're not like, well, we were told to be here by five o'clock. We don't have time to go, you know, do that. Mm -hmm. We have to keep moving. So. It definitely helps let you set your own pace. Um, 
So one reason that you might modify the um, the module is maybe one of your players has either played or read it before. Potentially, they might even be dishonest about it. Uh, honestly, I'll tell you in in my first opinion, if you have these people at your people at your table, you probably should ask them to leave. But uh, you can twist some stuff up and keep people from reading ahead by shuffling some stuff around. That's honestly one of the reasons that Curse of Strahd is so like well loved and enjoyed is that a lot of the main like MacGuffins are shuffleable because of the Taraka deck. Mm-hmm. That you can kind of just like move those things around and it's in keeping with the story so that you could go back and play that seven times and based on your card draw everything's gonna be different. Yeah, Curse of Strahd works really well because everything shuffles around and because they wanted to center the Taraka deck, they um, really did focus on making sure that everything is identifiably a movable piece so that you mm-hmm. know that you could shuffle them around. You know, you're not actually collecting the items in order. It's just like you must collect seven pieces to build the item. As far as the um, players that have read something before... Yeah, like if you're running a home game and you have a player that insists on reading ahead or stuff like that, that is definitely a thing that you have control over and you should, you know, tell them to knock it off because it's not fun for anybody. Particularly if they're going to try to be rules lawyer and be like, no, that didn't happen in the module according to this page. This thing is supposed to happen. That's not Guess fun. what, buddy? You're not supposed to be in the module. Yeah. You know, like, because I run in public uh, organized play and technically we're not allowed to throw anybody out for just being, you know, an unpleasant player. Uh- <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, I I think to reiterate some of the things that we've touched on, you know, adjusting modules is going to be different for every game and every system. So knowing it is going to be the big part one, but the part two is going to be be flexible. You know, um, modules do a really good job, typically speaking, in most systems of kind of laying out the story beats for you. But how you get from point A to B and from point B to C can be a little flexible. So don't feel too rigid about sticking to your guns on how things go, because it's inevitably going to go a different way than you expect. So just have a little bit of, you know, loosen up those shoulders a little bit, right? Absolutely. And that, that kind of ties into uh, one of my next two points. Like, it's one of the main reasons that we would swap something out would be for the drama, right? Yeah. Yeah. So before you start, I would say dig into your players' backstories. Uh, obviously, this will be a little bit different if you're running something like Adventurous League, where you don't necessarily have that information up front. But... Somebody can from those characters' life experiences can stand in for an existing NPC. And if they line up, then it's an easy fit. As long as you understand that that NPC's personality, you can roll with it and move on. When you're going on an adventure, you want to give the party a reason to want to do it rather than because it's the right thing to do, like the treasure map scenario. Don't hesitate to tie a few people or the whole group either to the big bad or some intermediaries. And one of the things is like to let those that opposition be memorable. So not everybody is gonna be Strahd or Asarak or you know pick a pick a big bad. 
but you can give characters a little more personality than I am the bandit leader and I don't have a name because I'm just a stat block. Mm -hmm. You can give them a little bit more personality. You can make them more interesting for your players to interact with so that it's a, it's a more memorable and dramatic time. And specifically, we talked about this a little bit. You want to give your players some breathing room in areas that might be necessary, whether they need to process heavy events or if you're trying to prep them for a big fight. Like Henry was talking about, you can insert some some rests and stuff in spots where they may or may not really allow for it, depending on what you have planned. That way, when you turn up the pressure, the team really feels like they're giving it their all. Yeah. Um. So, you know, so league play uh, is pretty goal oriented. Uh, it's you know, it's a TV, it's a you know sitcom episode or a TV episode. Uh, which means that the players, like, you don't get a lot of backstory and there's not always a lot of time for role-playing because you do have to get done. But that turns the games, the modules and stuff into a little more quippy stuff, you know? Like, you pick a thing that your character does that's kind of their catchphrase because, you know. Uh, And that can be pretty entertaining, especially, like, if you're, running a game if you think about oh well you know it's a bandit captain but if i imagine them as whatever tv character and just have them you know be peewee herman but evil or you know uh inconceivable <laughs> <laughs> that's where my mind went yeah well like one of my adventures league characters uh is a bard and he is the leader of a glam the glam rock band so if the party refuses to have a plan he strides into the room like his his default thing is oh yeah we're the band we're here the, we're the entertainment for the night like where is my dressing room and because <laughs> uh, the other thing is that you know because league play is on a timer there isn't a lot of time to do clever planning in a structured thing. So, you know, because I run and play a lot of this, most of my character motivations involve, like, if nobody is making a plan, how will I give the DM opportunities to move the story forward and get us to the end in time? So, you know, like, if nobody has a plan... This character is just going to bust in and be like, we're the entertainment. Where's my dressing room? Look, there's the stage. Ta-da, let's go. Which also leads into kind of when people get into the like role-playing, like brooding characters. Uh, I have a different one and like his, like the only thing to know about him is that he hates everyone, but he's under a Gaius from his god to keep his party alive. So when there's a moment, he's just very grumpy, but he heals everyone. No questions asked, which, you know, a lot of people kind of get caught up on this idea that they want to build a brooding and antisocial character, but they forget the other half of why is this character on the adventure or why is this character participating? You know, like I said, league play is really streamlined, I guess, is a way to s- talk about the role-playing, because you just have to find 
a quick catch phrase to be fast and memorable in those short sessions, but that's also a good way to create a memorable thing instead of Bandit Leader A. Like I said, it's Evil Pee Wee Herman. Okay, well, if I just Evil Pee Wee Herman, then I can throw out a catchphrase and everybody remembers the Bandit Captain, even if he, you know, didn't have a real name. <laughs> Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's it's like the difference between short form and long form improv. Speaking as somebody who did short form improv for years. Um because mm-hmm. like there's definitely a difference between okay, this is your character, this is this is their name. That's it. That's all you got to work with fill in the details yourself versus you're playing Carol Channing who gets her head stuck onto things magically via magical <laughs> super glue. Yep. <laughs> Yeah. Like yeah, very different approaches, but like it seem it seems like with modular play you get a lot more characters there or at least you really should develop characters in other elements of the story so that it's a lot more like okay, let me pull this out of a hat and boom, okay, I have some concrete details for this particular character. It's not like uh, it's a blank. Fill in the blank. It's it. It's it's pulling out it's of a hat Mad versus libs. Mad Libs. Yeah. 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 So the other big reason uh, that that you would want to tweak things is for balance sake, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so there may be anytime you're you're looking at retooling a module, you might look at adding in some fights that are more than just kill all the enemies. Uh, your party's going to remember those fights a lot more than just, oh yeah, we rolled through and, and stomped all those kobolds. Like, if you make the fight a little bit more interesting, add a few pieces of terrain like we've talked about previously, those are going to be some memorable opportunities and encounters. If a fight is meant to be dramatic, but the stat block is lackluster, swap it out or build your own. There's specifically a fight in Out of the Abyss where, like, the character that they mean for... Uh, somebody to oppose the party is like a CR one or something. And at this point, the party is like second or third level, depending on where you go. Plus they have a bunch of like people hiring, following them around like hirelings. And it's like, this is not going to be an interesting, compelling or challenging fight. Like what are we going to do to ramp this up so that the group enjoys this more and it's more memorable. Don't hesitate to either toss in some magic items that make sense, but didn't make the book. Or remove some that don't really work or cause some some weird wrinkles or problems. Uh, if you can you can add some bonus points in there if you can work them in dramatically, whether it's to the characters or some of the NPCs that are in the story. And then finally, uh, throw in some traps or environmental hazards to let the group shine and kind of liven up some of the dull hallways or broom closets. I don't know what it is about Watsi and Paizo both. But when they give you a map of a dungeon, they love to give you like, well, this is the broom closet and this is the privy and this and that. And you're like, that's great. But like, it's on the map, so it must be important, right? Well, no, it's just accurate. Uh, okay. And um, hilariously, so- those aren't actually accurate in any capacity. They're just like, no. we were drawing a castle <laughs> and we decided that it would be fun for there to be a toilet. <laughs> yeah. It's one of those things where it's like, well, they they have to have a toilet because where else are we gonna make the the pee pee and the poo poo jokes? <laughs> but uh, yeah, make make those places more interesting. Give them a little bit more character. Uh, but those are those are the things that I had. 
Uh, Hunter, Kelsey, what you got? Uh, Hunter, if you are able to go next, because I don't have a whole ton of notes, to be perfectly honest with you. You know, I had a few, but we have resoundly covered pretty much all of them. (laughs) No, this has been a really robust discussion so far. So uh, I'll just go ahead. I'll reiterate a couple of things. Um, Primary among them being know your table, first off, know your content, secondly, and Keep your changes relatively minor for the most part. If you're running a module, it doesn't really do you any favors if you change the whole thing, because at that point you might as well make your own story, right? Mm -hmm. So keep the changes relatively minor, Mm -hmm. names, some, you know, location descriptions. Um, Maybe here or there you'll tweak a combat so that uh, you know, a creature is a little bit different from what's in the book, or maybe you just want to give it a, a certain cool ability because you know that it'll go up against one of your player's abilities. Uh, I've said it a number of times, but challenge your player's strengths. And if you need to make minor tweaks mm-hmm. to combats or social encounters in order to do that, that should pretty much be be it. You know, uh, modules don't require a lot of adjustment if it's a good module. So just keep your changes minor. Know your table. You know, Kelsey, what you got? Uh, a whole lot of know your table. That's all I really have to add to this discussion. Uh, to be perfectly honest with you, I don't run modules. Um, the one time that I did, I, I read it through and then I went, hmm, this is giving me ideas for my own homebrew. I'm just going to go off and do my own homebrew and do it that way. Um, so I don't have a whole ton to add as far as adjusting pre-written stuff because I just make, make up my own things. Uh, but just thinking about it from like a DM standpoint or even like a player standpoint um looking at a module it's like you you got to you got to think about why it is that you're picking up that module in the first place what is it about the module that makes you go yes i want to play through this cuz like i'll tell you what speaking as a player not every module particularly for D&D 5e is of interest to me but i'm also very choosy as a player mm-hmm. um so you know, keep that in mind if you are a, D- a DM and you want to put a group together, even if it's for just a one shot, just be like cognizant of why you picked up that module, what it is that got your interest in the first place. And if you feel like the module is weak in getting certain ideas or themes across, make some tweaks as necessary to make those themes and ideas a little bit stronger. Absolutely. Just going to paint broad strokes here. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Um, You know, I I think we've had an excellent discussion about modules, what their purpose are, what they're good at, what they're bad at, and, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, how to bring them to your own table for anything. League play, uh, you know, uh, my brain stopped working for a second. Public or private (laughs) table play. There we go. That's what I was trying to say. (laughs) To be fair, this has been a wild week. It has been a bit of a wild week for me, but that that will be for Twitter to tell. 
Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> with all of this said and done, you know, uh, Henry, thank you so much for joining us. It has been excellent having you on. You're a wealth of knowledge about modules and, and how they function and how they're written. So why don't you tell our listeners where we can find you on the internet and what projects you've got going on right now? Well, I'm around about the internet uh, at Giant Blue Canary basically everywhere. I don't actually do anything TTRPG-related, really, um, online. I'm old school enough that I actually prefer playing in person. To be fair, same. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a YouTube channel about other things uh, for toy engines and antique tractors and stuff. Ooh, very cool. Yeah, um... I do historical cooking and random sewing stuff and uh, about a thousand other things. And sometimes that's on my Instagram, uh, depending if I remember I have an Instagram or not. You know, <laughs> so, like <laughs> I'm on the Internet, yeah. but not all the time. <laughs> right. Your life is lived like in other places. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, people ask me what I'm doing. I'm like, man, I got a lot of stuff going on but I don't remember what mm-hmm. any of it is. I've, d- I've done a bit of this and a bit of that. I got a story about almost drowning in a canoe and a story about that time I met that one guy. And, you know, it turns out grandmother was friends with the guy that invented the Segway and all kinds of weird things, but doesn't... <laughs> well, yeah. speaking of Segways... <laughs> Del, are we going to have a masterful segue here? I was going to say softball, softball alert. <laughs> no, we're not actually going to have a segue because I'm just going to let all of you know if you want to follow Henry's Instagram, Twitter, or any other socials, we're going to have those linked in the description down below. Uh, so please go follow Henry for sounds like an incredible variety of content uh, for whatever you sure, might want yeah. at any given time. Whenever we remember that Instagram exists, of course. Yes. <laughs> and with all of that said and done, Henry, thank you one more time for joining us. Uh, don't forget, listeners, to follow Giant Blue Canary on Twitter, Instagram, and other socials. And we'll see you in two weeks. Bye. Thanks for listening. Later, everybody. Bye. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The Fourth Leg. If you enjoyed this or any other episode of the show, be sure to leave us a five-star review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you choose to listen. Please reach out to us and let us know what you thought of this episode at The Fourth Leg on Twitter, thefourthlegpod at gmail.com, or by joining our Discord. Links to all of those options will be in the description below. If you'd like to follow Hunter, Joe, or Kelsey socials, Links to those can be found in the description as well. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you in two weeks.